Amid a national call for accountability and after years of silence, Texas clergy now say they will name names of priests accused of child sex abuse. The story today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. The announcement from the 15 dioceses in Texas seen as an attempt to rebuild trust with the state's 8.5 million Catholics, but questions linger over the process and whether justice can be served. Also, the Florida Panhandle assesses damage in the wake of Hurricane Michael as Texas researchers explore the long-term implications of what many regard as the worst industrial catastrophe ever to hit the Gulf. Plus, surprise findings in a survey on political polarization. All that and more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, you're on Texas Standard Time on this 11th day of October 2018. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. You're no doubt aware of the nationwide call for accountability over child sex abuse allegations in the Catholic Church. The Austin American Statesman reports 4,600 clergy have been publicly accused of such wrongdoing since the 1950s, only 134 in all of Texas. Well, that's about to change. Catholic leaders in Texas say they'll soon release the names of clergy, quote, credibly accused of child sexual assault. Eileen Flynn Delao specializes in reporting on religion and teaches at the University of Texas School of Journalism. Professor Delao, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. I have to ask you right out of the gate, how big of a deal do you uh, see this and were you surprised by the news? Yeah, I have kind of conflicted feelings about it. On the one hand, I was I was very surprised. On on the other, I'm kind of also surprised that this hasn't happened sooner. It seems like as as important and positive a step as it is, it's long overdue. Um, the bishops uh, in Texas had the opportunity to publish more information about accused priests 14 years ago, and they decided not to name names or give any details about uh, abuse cases. So um, looking back, it seems like this probably could have been done a lot sooner. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's a it's something to be embraced now. At least this information will be coming out. But I guess you're you're raising the obvious question: Why now? I mean, there was that recent grand jury report in Pennsylvania which found sexual abuse that spanned decades. But you know, before that, there was the sexual abuse scandal in uh, Boston. Uh, this has been an issue that has uh, that has been much talked about in well in in the past couple of decades. In fact. It sure has. But I think, you know, the the big first big explosion, of course, was 2002 when the Boston Globe revealed um, the depth and breadth of this uh, cover up. But then after a number of years, I, I think we might have gotten lulled into a sense of complacency. Oh, sure. The, the church is handling these things now. Uh, they And they have been doing a tremendous uh, amount of work on training people to prevent uh, sexual abuse. Um, but something happened in 2018 uh, where the, just more explosions came up and more news reports. Uh, we, Of course, you mentioned the Pennsylvania uh, case, uh, but even Pope Francis has come under uh, harsh scrutiny mm -hmm. for, for the way he's handled some uh, abuse cases. And his popularity has declined, according to a, a new Pew report. So there's something... Uh, happening now that it, I think the intensity has kind of ratcheted up again. So now you have the 15 Catholic bishops in Texas saying that they will soon publish the names of clergy who have been, and they, they say, credibly 
accused of child sexual assault. Okay, so what? who counts as credible and who gets to decide that? This is a real uh, point of contention, especially for survivors of sexual abuse, because they are really tired of the church being the arbiters of credibility, um, given the church's credibility having suffered so much. Uh, so that's, it's a good question, and I think it will vary from diocese to diocese. I, I, uh, I think some bishops have invited outside investigators to vet some of these reports, Others, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's some of this is still kind of cloaked in a bit of secrecy, or or at least internal machinations of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, some victims groups are saying we want an outside investigator to look at this stuff. We don't want you to handpick people to do it. So what will happen is is it, it may vary again. You know, there are eight and a half million Catholics in Texas. What does this mean for the faith and the faithful? You know, it, it's so hard to predict. The Catholic Church is still going strong. I remember I was visiting New Orleans and popped into the cathedral. This was the day after the just terrible uh, news out of Pennsylvania had been published. And it was just packed to the gills, and there were baptisms going on. And, you know, Catholics who are, for whom the, the church means a lot to them, they'll still show up. I think there are others who might just find it that they that they can't participate any longer because this feels like it's still not resolved and they don't want to support an institution that that hasn't had a full reckoning with this sex abuse mm-hmm. um, disaster. Well, now now let me ask uh, about the nature of this investigation because it seems like this is being done internally by the Catholic Church. But if we're talking about sexual abuse. Where is the Texas Attorney General here? Where are the prosecutors? Uh, where does this go from here? Yeah, this gets complicated. I, I think certainly, you, depending on the allegation, on the story uh, that that they're investigating, I mean, the statute of limitations may have expired. Some survivors groups are saying we want attorneys general in every state to be doing their own investigation of. of the church. But for these really old cases, a lot of times victims just don't see that kind of justice served. Eileen Flynn Della O has reported on religion, and she's currently a lecturer at the University of Texas School of Journalism. Professor, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. The new Quinnipiac poll in the Texas Senate race puts incumbent Ted Cruz up by nine points over Beto O'Rourke. Other polls breaking down the numbers by race have shown support among black voters at 97 percent for the Democrat, Congressman O'Rourke. KUT Austin's Ashley Lopez reports on what might be behind that remarkable number. There's this video of Beto O'Rourke that Ted Cruz tweeted not too long ago. It shows O'Rourke standing in front of a crowd of African-Americans in a church in Dallas. The crowd was on their feet cheering as O'Rourke talked about what happened to Botham Jean, a black man who had been fatally shot in his own home by a white Dallas police officer. How will we continue to lose the lives of unarmed black men in the United States? While O'Rourke condemned the shooting and said it pointed to a larger problem that faces black people in America, Cruz has said he's weary of jumping to conclusions about what happened. In his tweet sharing the video, Cruz wrote in Better O'Rourke's own words, as if O'Rourke made this huge misstep. But if you talk to black voters, this wasn't a misstep. It was a breath of fresh air. I think that he's speaking to issues that hit at 
the core of issues that are facing Black people. That's Latrice Cook. She's the executive director and founder of the Melge Center, which works with people who have been incarcerated. She's not surprised at all to hear that O'Rourke is doing very well among Black voters. Cook says O'Rourke is talking about police violence and race, which are the kinds of things politicians typically tread carefully around. People are afraid to talk about what's going on right now. People are a little bit more cautious about people's feelings uh, there, and especially when it comes to this, because it is so much tension right now. Like the debate over professional football players kneeling during the national anthem in protest of police violence. When asked about this issue during a campaign event, O'Rourke said this. And I can think of nothing more American than to peacefully stand up or take a knee for your rights anytime, anywhere, any place. When he said that, I was like, yes. I'm like, yeah. Like, I jumped. I was like, yes. That's Grant Loveless. He's a student and Black activist in Austin. He says he appreciates that O'Rourke has acknowledged that life is harder for Black people in America than it is for privileged white Americans. Because we have to jump hurdles. We have to go in trenches of water just to get where we want to. Whereas other people would just have to walk along and say, oh, well, my dad's a CEO. I got the job. And that's when institutional power does come in. In fact, during his debate with Ted Cruz, Beto O'Rourke was asked about a DWI arrest when he was young. O'Rourke said he made a mistake and was grateful to have been afforded a second chance in life. What I do know is that as a white man in this country, there's a privilege that I enjoy that many African-American men and women do not. Latrice Cook thinks the way O'Rourke is talking about these issues is resonating with black voters like her. She says she thinks O'Rourke knows he's probably upsetting some white voters, but she's glad he's taking that risk. I think that one of the things that we fail to do just as a society is talk about it and talk about things in real time and talk about it in a way that is not edited or where you're using cautionary uh, language. But Gabrielle Prichard with Austin Justice Coalition, which works on issues of racial justice, says it would be a bigger deal if O'Rourke didn't talk about this. She says it's 2018 and race is at the core of political divisions. I think it would have been a huge misstep and just a huge letdown if this hadn't been part of the narrative at all. Prichard says as a black woman, she agrees that O'Rourke is saying all the right things. But she also wants to see details and a plan to address these issues. And she says people need to also hold O'Rourke accountable if he doesn't do or say the right thing. There's kind of this whole Beto will save everything, but we also have to hold these people accountable. So if they say something that you're not quite on board with, making sure you call them out. But so far, the campaign hasn't gotten pushback from black voters. Instead, polls are only showing increasing support for O'Rourke. Peck Young, a professor with Austin Community College and a longtime Democratic strategist, says it is not surprising black voters are supporting O'Rourke in large numbers. He says they're the backbone of the Democratic Party. In fact, he says he's more surprised that the party as a whole isn't reaching out to black voters as consistently as O'Rourke. The problem is, is that A lot of the leadership around him and other parts of the state are still part of this, we got to find a swing voter. Well, when 50 to 60 percent of the voters vote brand, which is straight ticket voting, your first job is to find those people and be sure they're motivated on your side. But the O'Rourke campaign says this is an important part of his efforts to make sure communities feel heard and understood. The campaign is purposefully not shying away from these issues because they believe it's what people care about. In Austin, I'm Ashley Lopez for the Texas Standard. 
He's back, social media editor Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Sticking with the Beto O'Rourke-Ted Cruz race a moment longer. As you noted earlier, a new poll out today from Quinnipiac shows incumbent Republican Cruz up by nine points over Democratic challenger O'Rourke among Mm -hmm. likely voters. Here's what some friends and listeners are saying about that on Facebook. Helen Treisch says, I saw a poll where they called 13,000 people recently and they barely reached 200 to get their opinion. She says polling in this age is worthless. I think she may be referring to that real-time New York Times yeah, poll, which yeah, they was really they fascinating. They weren't done there, but they all, and they also said it wasn't scientific. Yeah. So, yeah. Adam Rosales says, notes that these types of polls showed Hillary winning by a landslide. Get out and vote. Don't let any findings discourage you. Well, here's another political story getting shared on social media. A Texan running for the House of Representatives says a campaign field director was arrested while delivering a letter to the county judge after identifying himself as a Democrat. More on this story mm. out of the Prairie View area later in the show. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. We've been hearing a lot of interesting stories uh, out of uh, Prairie View. Also in that Quinnipiac University poll, uh, Governor Greg Abbott has a lead over uh, Lupe Valdez, 58 to 38 percent. Let us know what you think. Tweet us at Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. Happy Thursday to you and yours. You got it tuned to the Texas Standard. ExxonMobil is putting $1 million toward a plan to create a U.S. carbon tax to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The news is getting the Texas-based oil giants some thumbs up from environmentalists, but as KUT Austin's Mose Bouchelle tells us, the plan ExxonMobil supports is not without benefits to the company itself. Under the plan, companies pay a tax on CO2 they put into the atmosphere. That money then goes into a fund that compensates consumers to defray the higher cost of fossil fuels brought by the tax. The whole thing leaves Scott Edwards, co-director of the environmental group Food and Water Justice, with a question. If it's costing me $20 more a week to put gas in my tank and I'm getting a check at the end of the month for 100 bucks, then, then why not just keep putting gas in my tank? In fact, some environmentalists worry the system would increase reliance on fossil fuels as consumers get used to receiving those carbon dividend checks. Other reasons they don't like the plan? It would relieve oil and gas companies of legal liability for contributing to global warming at a time when climate lawsuits seem to be increasing. And having a carbon tax in place could end the EPA's direct regulation of CO2. But the main reason Edwards says he opposes all carbon tax plans, not just this one, is because he doesn't think they'll work. Because, you know, it's, it's not going to be an overnight shift, right? So let's wait five years, six years, ten years to see if this market mechanism, this market adjustment is really going to result in changes in consumption and emissions. Of course, by then, ten years, it's too late. That's why his group is advocating direct government regulation as the only proven way of reducing CO2 emissions. I'm Mose Bouchelle for The Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Rescue and recovery efforts underway along the Florida panhandle right now, where officials are still trying to get a handle on the scale of the devastation wrought by Hurricane Michael. But it was eight years ago that the Gulf was devastated by an industrial catastrophe, when an explosion on a deepwater drilling rig led to 4.9 million barrels of oil spilling into the Gulf over 87 days. Eight years later, 
The long-term impacts remain largely unknown, but researchers at the University of Texas Marine Science Institute in Port Aransas are trying to find some answers. Associate Professor Andrew Espaugh is part of that team. Professor Espaugh, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. Let's talk first about what is known about short-term exposure to oil, just the short-term. What, what about the immediate after-effects of an oil spill on marine life? Well, it really depends on, on the life stage of the animal. So we do a lot of work with fish, and that's what I'll, I'll talk about mostly today. But um, when you're talking about really young animals, animals that are embryonic or larval fish, mm -hmm. um, they, they're really susceptible to, to oil exposure in terms of causing cardiac deformities. Um, so in other words, their, their hearts develop in slightly different ways that results in them being less efficient organs. And that really likely leads to their, their mortality. Um, when animals are exposed in later life, um, it's still cardiac problems that they typically exhibit, um, but it doesn't necessarily lead to directly to mortality. It's more like um, an animal will be impacted so that they can't exercise quite as well. Mm -hmm. Their maximum swim performance goes down. Mm -hmm. Their ability to take in oxygen from the environment goes down uh, on the max end. So it's kind of more analogous to uh, if you were an athlete, their athletic prowess being being decreased. Mm -hmm. I see. Now let's shift gears into the long-term effects. How are you going about researching? I mean, what are you looking for? Well, one of the things that we're really interested in is trying to figure out how those kind of cardiac impacts that we know happen when a fish is exposed to sublethal levels of oil, how those manifest throughout the rest of their life. So, for example, an animal that, that swims at a, at a slower speed, there's all these ecological hypotheses that those animals will be less effective at being able to capture prey, they will be less effective at being able to avoid predators, and they'll also be less effective at competing with their, their conspecifics or individuals of their same species mm -hmm. for, for resources. That's like things like habitat, preferential habitat, uh -huh. um, preferential food sources, those types of things. So kind of like social competition. So you and end we're up, looking at those three dynamics, really. I guess, I guess you, you end up basically altering, if, if, you're, if this theory bears out, you end up altering uh, the balance of life in the Gulf. Yeah, well, it, it's a complex kind of network because predators and everything will be exposed. But yes, um, what can ultimately happen is certain areas that would be particularly hard hit, so just say the northern part of the Gulf of Mexico by mm -hmm. Louisiana, right. where there's still a lot of oil buried in the sediment. If that's that oil is leaching into the environment, if it's causing these kind of slow impacts on localized fisheries, you could have a complete dynamic or a, a shift in how the, the kind of the ecological network comes together. So what have you learned so far? I mean, is it too early in the game to, to, to know uh, anything or, or have you been able to piece something together? We've learned a lot, actually. So a lot of these hypotheses really are bearing out. We've, we've run tests now where we have fish competing um, with each other for resources and even just straight up one-on-one -on -one competition. Hmm. And what we're seeing is that the oil-exposed individuals are, you know, they perform much, much more poorly than animals that are just normal normal control animals. Um, when we run predation style assays, um, we see that animals that are exposed to oil are, are preyed upon about, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an assay to time, so, but it's, they're essentially caught much, much quicker. Um, hmm. So the, the, the control animals, they take about an hour, an hour and a half for our assay to kind of yield results, whereas the oil exposed, it's only about 45 minutes. So 
it's a, it's a pretty stark result in that way. So what does this research do to advance, say, uh, policy or help scientists in the future? I mean, how, how will this uh, information uh, help offset future catastrophes or, or help us uh, uh, prevent them from happening, perhaps? That's a really good question because that's really the goal of a lot of this research. And I think a lot of it comes into risk assessment. I think everybody knows that oil is a really important natural resource, and uh, especially in Texas, it's, it's not going anywhere. But what we want to do is to make sure that policymakers are informed on, on the potential risks, especially risks that are, are pertinent to important uh, other natural resources like fish and fisheries. Oil is a big moneymaker in Texas, but recreational and commercial fisheries are also a big moneymaker. And there's a lot of communities on the coast that really rely on these resources. So we have to make sure that policymakers understand the risks when they're, they're kind of planning how, how the oil industry expands, how it works. We've been speaking with Andrew Espaugh. He is an associate professor at UT's Marine Science Institute, where they're trying to piece together the long-term impact of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Professor Espaugh, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about a revamp of the area surrounding one of the state's major landmarks, one you may be somewhat familiar with. Yesterday, the San Antonio City Council heard a presentation for a plan that aims to make the space in front of the Alamo. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, They want to make it larger and more historically rich, and planners say reverential. But it could possibly limit the free 24-hour access to that Alamo Plaza. This is all part of a $450 million project to expand and enhance the city-owned Alamo Plaza into a state lease space by 2024. They're talking about putting up fences and other barriers which would enclose the Alamo Plaza and limit access to daytime museum hours. Mayor Ron Nirenberg is among those who want to keep the plaza open to the public as it is today. We're about to talk gadgets with digital guru Omar Gayaga. He's in the studio right after the roundup here on The Standard. Stay with us. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Santa Fe School District officials say they will struggle to afford new security measures over time without state support. The district has already dipped into $2 million of its own funds to increase safety after a student fatally shot 10 people at Santa Fe High School on May 18th. They've also received grants from the federal government and the state aimed at hiring new security and mental health personnel. Santa Fe ISD Superintendent Lee Wall testified before the Texas Texas House Appropriations Committee this week. We've always appreciated the importance of providing sufficient funding for all districts through the basic allotment funding for regular programs, though we also see a need to include additional funding for new safety and support measures with some flexibility and local control as every district will have unique needs on their respective campuses. Santa Fe ISD's board president, Rusty Norman, added they're doing their best to move forward. And if Santa Fe ISD and the community of Santa Fe is the catalyst that makes change in whatever, whether it's the financing piece, the school safety piece, the mental health piece, whatever it is, we will be that catalyst. The shooting at Santa Fe High School prompted Governor Greg Abbott and state lawmakers to examine some ways to improve school safety leading up to the 2019 legislative session. 
An environmental group is preparing to fight the Trump administration over a plan to waive dozens of laws to close gaps in the border wall in Texas. Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie has more. The Department of Homeland Security has announced plans to install 11 gates in the existing border wall in Cameron County to close gaps there. DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen says the gaps make the area a magnet for illegal cross-border activity. So she's waived more than two dozen laws under the Endangered Species and Clean Water Acts to help move the projects along. But Lake and Jordan, all of the Center for Biological Diversity, says shoring up the wall won't stop illegal immigration. But as ineffective as these walls are at stopping people, they have very real devastating impacts on wildlife. His group sued the Trump administration twice to stop new border wall construction and says it's willing to do it again in these cases. In San Antonio, I'm Bonnie Petrie. Dallas made history Wednesday as the first city in Texas to get state recognition for its LGBTQ neighborhood. Last night, the Texas Historical Commission unveiled an official marker in front of JR's Bar and Grill in Oaklawn. Evie Lou Pridgen is president of the Dallas Way, a group that works to preserve the city's LGBTQ history and which requested the designation. The marker actually starts out talking about that Dallas is not known for being politically progressive, and yet... It has become one of the few places in the United States that actually is welcoming and has a neighborhood for gays, lesbians, transgendered, bisexual, and queer. There are more than 16,000 state historical markers in Texas. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Every fall, the big tech players, we're talking Apple, Microsoft, Samsung, and, well, you know, the rest of the gang, they all come out releasing new phones and gadgets, hoping you'll send some holiday gift-buying dollars their way or more likely perhaps be unable to resist buying a new toy for yourself. With Google's hardware announcements this week, I suppose you could say the fall unveiling season is almost a wrap. So what are we looking at here? This year, the big news isn't just a better camera or a bigger screen, it's price. Tech expert Omar Gayaga says buyers are due for a bit of sticker shock, alas. Hey there, Omar. Hey, David. Let's begin with what's actually new this fall. Google's got a new, what, Pixel 3 phone, which I guess was <laughs> the worst kept secret in tech, right? Yeah, we're, we're getting to a point where there's really no surprises at these big tech conferences. Like, they, everything leaks, everything yeah. comes out beforehand. Uh, but what, what's interesting about uh, Google's new phones, the Pixel 3 and the Pixel 3 XL, the larger one, is just price increases. And it, we're seeing this across the board with Apple, with uh, Samsung, uh, with Google now, just you would think these gadgets would get cheaper over time, mm -hmm. but, but they're actually getting more expensive, especially in the smartphone area. Why do you think that is? Is it just they realize we're addicted? Uh, because as you're, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the, the standard law of technology is smaller, cheaper, faster. But cheaper, uh, not so much. Yeah. I, I mean, we talked about this when the iPhone, uh, the new iPhones came out, is that a lot of it is that the, the, the wireless carrier subsidies are going away. So mm -hmm. mo more people are, are buying the phone outright. Right. And when you do that, you know, it, you, you're going to pay a lot for that phone. Uh, but also a lot of it, especially with Apple and Google and Samsung, is that they can. You know, people are willing now yeah. to spend more than $1,000 for a, a top-of-the-line new flagship phone. Well, you know, they can, but not without getting sometimes a black eye. I mean, you remember when Apple released its $1,000 phone, the iPhone ten, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, it seems like uh, despite all that negative press, they sort of doubled down on that this year. Yeah, there was a lot of hemming and hawing, probably from me, about when the <laughs> iPhone X came out about a $1,000 phone, uh, but people still bought it. 
that's the thing. It's that Apple can continue to get away with this and sell these phones and people will still buy them. And what Apple's doing now is people, uh, there's kind of a, two things going on. One is that some people are keeping their phones a lot longer. You still have people walking around with iPhone 5s and iPhone 6s. Mm-hmm. And then there's people like me who need to buy the new one every year or are, are on an upgrade plan. So you have that split in the market. Uh, and Apple is trying to find ways to set, make more money from each phone rather than selling more phones. You know, I, I get that when it comes to the high end, there are appreciable differences. But if you're not talking about the high end, you know, you're not talking about that $1,000 latest thing from, from Apple, for example. Uh, is there really an appreciable difference between some of the, like the HTC phones or mm-hmm. some of these other brands? Uh, generally, the, the improvements that we're seeing, like like with these new Google phones, is generally going to be with the camera. They're going to take, you know, have new camera features. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might have more memory if you're, you know, you're getting cramped in space on your phone. You know, that's a good reason to upgrade. But generally, no, we've kind of plateaued on the big kind of blockbuster features. Mm-hmm. So now a lot of it is very kind of minor incremental changes. Like, you know, say you you might have an older phone that doesn't do wireless charging, or you might have a phone that doesn't have two camera lenses on the back. Uh, these are kind of the changes that we're seeing. Uh, but, you know, they're all also offering, you know, last year's model or like a cheaper version, like right. Apple with the the iPhone uh, XR, which is going to be like a cheaper version of, of these new phones. Well, yeah, maybe that's a, a, an option if you are, uh, don't want to uh, spring for the, for the expensive versions. Uh, Microsoft came out with a bunch of Surface devices, and I think that surprised a lot of folks. It almost seemed like they had, they were given up on the Surface, but no. Uh, no, Microsoft still sells very well, especially with Apple kind of lagging behind a little on its laptops, and and you know it hasn't really given a lot of love to its to its computer line mm-hmm. the way it does with its phone and mm-hmm. tablets. But uh, the other thing is, Microsoft is also kind of charging a lot of money for some of these devices. They have a Studio Two computer, a desktop computer they came out with that starts at $3,500 and goes up to $4,800. That sounds like Apple pricing. Yeah. And when when you read the reviews, it's like, this is an amazing, you know, any designer would love to have this computer, but you can't afford it. (laughs) But you can't afford it. Right. So uh, do consumers need to spend all this kind of money? I mean, are there not uh, reasonably priced alternatives out there? No, absolutely not. I mean, there is a big resale market. I mean, there's sites like Gazelle that sell, you know, the used phones and the used tablets and computers. Uh, I mean, really, the strategy is to buy last year's model. That's really, you know, to get the most bang for your buck, you're going to want to not buy the, the latest and greatest, but maybe last year's version that is almost as good, but maybe half the cost. We're almost out of time, but I have to ask you about another gadget that's getting a lot of attention this week, Facebook Portal. Yeah, everybody's trying to get into this market that Amazon has sort of pioneered with Alexa and with their Amazon Echo Show, which Uh is sort of like Alexa, but with a screen. Uh Uh, So now Facebook has this messenger chatting device that sits on your... Uh, on your counter that that has a screen. Uh, Google Home Hub is the kind of the same thing, but without the camera. So really, they're trying to do this kind of voice command thing, but visually, where you actually have a screen to back it up. Yeah, some people are a little creeped out by that screen, but you know. Yeah, do you hey, want a Facebook camera in your house? There's, I don't there's, know. There's that question. You can find <laughs> tech expert Omar Gayaga at techminutetexas.com. Omar, good to see you again. We'll talk to you again next week. Oh, thanks for having me, David. Coming up on 39 Minutes Past the Hour. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Mike Slattery, who empowers students to save the world's remaining rhinos. More at leadon.tcu.edu. TCU, lead on. Hey, it's Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. You might be familiar with the name Charlie Dunn. It's the title of a Jerry Jeff Walker song, and if you're listening to the lyrics, you'll know Charlie was a famous bootmaker in Austin. 
He died in the early 90s, but his boot-making legacy lives on. That's the subject of today's episode of Heel to Toe, in which Texans tell us about their relationship with their boots. So cowboys care about their horse and their hat and their cowboy boots. That's where we come in. My name is Lee Miller, and I make cowboy boots in Austin, Texas. Our shop is called Texas Traditions, and that was the original name from when it first opened in 1977, and I was one of the young apprentices for Charlie Dunn. Charlie Dunn, he's the one to see. Charlie Dunn, boots that are on your feet. I was 23 when I met Charlie, and Charlie was a, had a fiery temper. He was not a big man, he was a little guy, but boy, you didn't mess with him. I was just totally in awe of him. And so it was amazing to work for somebody who, had, who, could, who was part of history, who could tell you the way it was done many, many years ago. And so every word that he would utter, I just kind of hung on. Charlie can tell what's wrong with your feet. Just a feeling them with his hand. And he can take a look at the boot you wear. And know a whole lot about the man. But he did fire me many times. I'd stop laughing at his jokes, and he could see the irritation in my face, and he would just tell me to get out. And so I, he fired me probably, I don't know, 10 times. He just kept firing me, and I just kept getting rehired. And I realized that he just had a hot temper, and he said things he didn't mean, but he was quick to apologize. So it, there was a pattern that developed, and so I kept my job. Well, when, when somebody comes in to, or, to order boots, um, we go ahead and we um, first talk about what, what they have in mind, and then I measure their feet. But once you've ever had a pair of boots made to fit your feet, you'll be spoiled and you'll never want to wear anything else because everything else will just feel terrible. Uh, we've made boots for Guy Clark, who's an iconic Texas songwriter. Lyle Lovett. We even made a pair of boots once for Sting. Uh, Jackson Brown, Roseanne Cash, Johnny Cash's daughter, came in here and we made boots for her. Tommy Lee Jones the, had boots made here for the movie Lonesome Dove. Um, we've made boots for many, many people, but those are some of the names that stand out. Charlie Dunn was famous for the, his uh, pinched rose, the, the yellow rose of Texas. We still do his rose, but we also have introduced uh, really cool patterns. Like what I like to do is I like to go back in time and find cool patterns from the 1920s and the 1930s and bring them back into life. Cowboy boots represent Texas just like a, a cowboy hat does. And so when people think of Texas, they naturally think of cowboy boots. And that's what we do, we make cowboy boots. And I'm just proud to be a part of that. Okay, fellow Texans, it's your turn. Got a unique story about your cowboy or cowgirl boots? We wanna hear it, reach out on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email, Standard at kut.org. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, 
providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Okay, Texans, brace your social media feeds. A new interactive public art installation in Fort Worth is about to blow up all over them. Hadi Mawagdi of KERA North Texas tells us about the retro-futuristic gadgets that are the focus of what's called the loop. You don't have to go to the gym in the morning. You can just come here and do this. Well, she's making me work. I'm making her work. Row, row, row. Okay, you do it. Fort Worth residents Martha Prudhomme and Mary Russell are trying out the city's newest piece of public art. Loop is located in downtown Fort Worth at Burnett Park, and Prudhomme's pretty into it. This is awesome. This is fun. What do you like about it? It makes you interact with the person. It makes you a little exercise. <laughs> Loop features a dozen circular-shaped, hand-powered machines along the park's walkways. You climb inside one, and it'll light up, play music, and project moving animated images. Sort of like a zoetrope. You know, one of those old-fashioned devices that spun images around, making them move. The animations, well, they're inspired by fairy tales like Alice in Wonderland. But they move thanks to people power. See, each nine-foot-tall cylinder has a lever, kind of like the lever on a railroad flat car. And as a person pumps the lever back and forth, the cylinder activates. Lights flash around you, music starts, and a flipbook-style animation begins. Interactive art is not, I don't see much that done here, except for maybe the water feature at Sundance, and that's mostly not so interactive, but what? That's Prunome's friend, Mary Russell. She works near Burnett Park at the YMCA, and she thinks Loop will draw people out. I think it's fantastic. I can't wait to see it at night when it has all the lights and stuff going, but any time that you can bring people that live downtown and elsewhere down to a park that doesn't get used very much, I think it's a great idea. Fort Worth City Councilwoman Ann Zeta agrees. Zeta says the parks downtown are meant to serve all of Fort Worth. And she thinks Loop's attractive because unlike some artworks, it's fun to play with. You don't have to go to a museum. You don't have to use your museum manners. Coming down here and being able to touch art and interact with it, I think, just opens it up to a broader audience. That prospect is exactly why the folks at Downtown Fort Worth, Inc. brought Loop to North Texas. The organization, which aims to make the city's center a destination, admits that Burnett Park has been underused. It's mostly visited during the day by nearby office workers or people leaving the courthouse. They hope Loop changes that. Bob Jamison thinks it can. He's CEO of the tourism group Visit Fort Worth. People are looking for more interaction, more direct engagement with whatever it is that they have to experience. And, and art is no different than anything else. And so to be here and to be part of it and to activate it just touches people in a way and engages them. Ten-year-old David Kanoor was what you'd call definitely engaged. He played with 10 of the 12 cylinders. My favorite part is that as you're pushing it, how it's telling the story, and you're, you can watch it while you, and it just keeps on going and going, and it, and it, and it, well, when it lights up, it's in it, the sound is cool. It tells, it's like music almost. Kevin Murphy works in Burnett Plaza. The park is literally outside his office doors, and he says the immersive artwork is pretty sweet. It looks, it looks very futuristic too. Uh, I don't know what about it makes me think that maybe it's just the round shape of it or something, but. It almost looks like aliens dropped a 
like a little part of their spaceship in our park or something. <laughs> it's not from outer space. It came from a pair of artists in Montreal, and Loop has already landed in D.C. and in New York. The Fort Worth invasion will only last until the end of October. Reporting from KERA North Texas, I'm Hadi Mawagdi for the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. You got it tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us on this Thursday. As we inch closer and closer toward the midterm elections, it seems the political divide between Democrats and Republicans is getting wider and wider. Recent polls show an almost perfect 50-50 split among Americans. However, a new study published this week, Hidden Tribes, a study of America's polarized landscape, suggests we might not be all that different after all. Joining us now, Daniel Yudkin, a postdoctoral researcher at Yale University and associate director of research for the nonprofit group More in Common. Welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the inspiration for this report, political polarization. We've been talking about that for, for some time now. Yeah, polarization obviously has been something that's on people's minds for, uh, especially in the past months and, and uh, years after the six, 2016 election. So more in common's goal was to try to kind of understand this better. Well, you say understand it better. Uh, let's 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 dig deeper here with what you found. What was the methodology here, and what sort of questions were you asking those uh, uh, who were participating? So, um, what more in common did was assemble eight thousand people, representative sample of the United States voting population, and we asked them a variety of questions, both about their political views and about what we call their core beliefs, which are sort of their underlying. Um, values that that shape the way they see the world. Mm -hmm. And so, when uh, when you got back their responses, w were you surprised? Yeah, honestly, we were really surprised. So, you know, you get this story, typical story in America, of this very very strong, stark fifty fifty divide. Mm -hmm. You get the left and the right. And what we did was essentially we conducted what's called a segmentation analysis, where we use people's responses to try to cluster them or group them into various uh, segments of right. like-minded individuals. And, and what we find is that very differently from the kind of 50-50 split that you get, we actually see seven different groups, what we call tribes, that are characterized in the American population. Very interesting. And, so, and you get a huge variety of, of different points of view that are very, very different from that sort of 50-50 split. You know, it's interesting. This 50-50 split echoes, you know, red state, blue state, right? Yeah, uh, right. exactly. So, so let's, let's touch on these uh, seven different tribes, did I understand yeah. you to say? Yes, that's right, exactly. So, so, you know, on the left side, for instance, on the, from the most ideologically left side, you have progressive activists, um, traditional liberals, and then all the way on the very on the more right hand side, you have groups like the devoted conservatives and um, traditional conservatives. So, what does this tell us about our political process, which you know has been pretty much a duopoly for most yeah. of modern American history? Yeah, I mean, what you know, for for us, one of the biggest insights was the idea that what you know what you often hear and what is probably leading to this perception of there being a 50-50 split or this red state blue state sense in America right now is that the 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 wing groups the ones that are the most extreme are 
also the most vocal and the most active. So they're dominating the conversation. But what we found is what we call the, an exhausted majority, a group that makes up two thirds of the American population. That's very much more towards the center of the ideological divide. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all centrist. They have flexible views um, and some of them are more to the right. Some of them are more to the left. But they are characterized by, first of all, uh, a flexibility in their in their political points of view and also um, a desire and exhaustion with the amount of polarization that they're seeing in America. And then finally, a sense that they're not heard from in the normal political debate. And so this group is potentially one of the sources of reconciliation to move forward past our polarization in America right now. But I mean, that sounds wonderful. But how do you put wheels on this in, in reality? Because there have been yeah. efforts to to have third parties which have gone uh, well, not very far, shall we say. Uh, right. and, and, and there are a lot of political scientists who will say you're, you're naive to think that there's a way past this beyond the two-party uh, process that we have. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the thing is, though, what you're getting from that group, even though at the same time while people are saying that this is among the, the most polarized America has ever been in their lifetime, for instance, nine out of ten Americans are saying that this is the most polarized this has been in their America has ever been in their lifetime, at the same time, there is a sense of hope and optimism. 77, three quarters of people also think that there is a path that can move our country forward if we can find the right language to encourage a sense of understanding and humanity on both sides of the political divide. Daniel Yudkin is Associate Director of Research for the nonprofit organization More in Common. We're going to have a link to the study, Hidden Tribes, a study of America's polarized landscape at TexasStandard.org. So you can check this out for yourself. Daniel, thanks so much. Thank you. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, proud to support Texas businesses that make safety a number one priority in the workplace. More about safety-focused workers' comp at WorkSafeTexas.com. That signal means our social media editor, Wells Dunbar, is back in the house. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, David. I mentioned this earlier interesting story. A tweet from Democratic candidate for U.S. House Mike Siegel has gone viral hmm. after one of his campaign workers was arrested during a disagreement about student voting. Yeah. So, yeah. So here's the tweet. It says that Wednesday, quote, one of my regional field directors was arrested in Waller County while delivering a letter to the county judge. The letter demanded immediate action to protect the voting rights of students at Prairie View A&M University. So mm. a lot to unpack here. So let's start at yeah. the beginning, I suppose. Siegel is challenging incumbent representative Michael McCall in Texas District 10 race. That's the creatively drawn district that stretches from West Austin down to the Houston suburbs right. I'm, around I'm there. That one, yeah. yeah, and it's in that Houston area where all this went down. Prairie View a&M University is apparently in the midst of a disagreement over the correct address student voters have to put down on their registration forms. Hmm. Long story short, it sounds like student people that registered with one of these two addresses they were mm -hmm. told to use will be allowed to vote on campus, okay. but they may be required to fill out a change of address form uh, prior to voting or during voting. Very interesting. Yeah, so this field director for Siegel went to deliver a letter to the Waller County judge denouncing right. that decision is likely to create confusion and long lines on voting day, and that's where 
things got messy. According to a Siegel press release, the field director photographed delivery of the letter to the clerk. Apparently, the clerk took some umbrage with being photographed, is what I read somewhere. I and at this point, he was prevented from leaving. Law enforcement arrived and asked him who he was working Whoa. for and what party he was with. And soon after stating he was with the Democratic Party, he was arrested. Now, he was arrested. Yes, he was arrested and apparently put, uh, again, per the press release from the Mike Siegel campaign, put on like a 48-hour hold. He was uh, released after just approximately two hours in custody and charged with a misdemeanor for failure to identify and his phone uh, was also confiscated. So no, obviously, wait, 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 yeah, wait, wait, raising so a lot of questions. Yeah, here. I'll say. I mean, is there a prop? There, the I presume the reason for it taking the photograph in the first place was to have proof, proof that of in delivery. Fact, yes, this exactly. And delivered. Is there some rule or some ordinance that says you can't have a well, cell you phone? <laughs> you can't take a cell phone picture. Yeah, no. your guess is as good as mine, and I won't be surprised if this is litigated a bit further. Yeah. Uh, obviously, and it uh, is like I said, it's uh, become viral for the Siegel campaign. I think that his tweet's been shared about six hundred times or so, mm-hmm. uh, and lots of folks are talking about it. Juju Jones, she raises an important uh, bit of background information here that this transpired uh, at Prairie View University, a historically black college and right. university, in sight of the uh, Sandra Bland tragedy where right. uh, she was uh, found dead in jail after being detained for that traffic stop. Wow, what so, a story. Yeah. Gee whiz. Well, it's one that continues to unfold on social media, and we want to know what's making news in your part of Texas. Feel free to tweet us at Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is looking for you. We're hoping you'll be able to join us once again tomorrow because we're out of time for the big broadcast. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown wishing you a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare. The Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.